We'll look in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, we're doing a deep dive in this letter because Peter really addresses the very issues that we are facing uh, in our own lives personally as a country, as a world. And he says, you know, there is a way that you and I can be um, profoundly used by the Lord to bring hope into somebody else's life and to bring them the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in chapter 2, just as a reminder, but in verse 9, but you are chosen people. He says, we are chosen. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may what? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so from there, he launches into how are we to relate to our civil authorities over us? Local governments, school boards, national governments, world governments. And how are we to respond to employer employee-employer relationships. Let's say your employer is just, they're not really kind, right? They're, they're a horrible boss. I think there's been movies, you know, produced about horrible bosses. Maybe you're, you have a horrible boss. How are you going to, how are you going to share hope? How are you going to have the opportunity to have influence in that person's life? And what about in marriage? What if you're not you're married and the, your spouse is not a believer and you want them to be a believer, but they seem real resistant to that. Or maybe you're married and you're both Christians, but you're not getting along and things aren't going well. How are we going to respond? So in all three of those relational um, quandaries, he says and uses the word submit. And the word submit simply means I'm willing to submit myself under somebody else's authority that is over me. And so Jesus says that our submission, he is the king of this kingdom we are part of. His manual is the Bible. He says, if you love me, you will follow my commands. What are the commands of Christ? Well, it's the new covenant. It's the New Testament. He says, you will surrender yourself under my authority, submit to my, my plan and my will and my purposes so that I can use you while you're here on planet earth. This is not your eternal home. This is your temporary home so that I can use you and leverage your life with the greatest amount of influence possible so that you can bring hope into the midst of something that is absolutely hopeless. So this is our calling. This is why we've been chosen. This is why we have been commissioned. And so we want to say, well, how do we do that? How, how do we be light in the midst of darkness? How do we let our works shine before others so that others would see what we do, how we live, and say, mm, there's something unique. There's something a little bit different about this person. I really want to know what it is. Why are they so optimistic in the midst of $5 a gallon gas and inflation? Why, why are they still optimistic? Why are they so optimistic when you know, the world seems to be kind of caving in on itself? How do they maintain this hope? So I want to address this. And so one of the things that really sparked this in me um, was I heard a pastor who gained notoriety on Facebook and um, especially during the election period. And, and I, if I mentioned his name, you know who it is. But he made a statement this week. And here's what he said and he put out online. He said, if you are a Democrat or voted democratically, you are not a Christian and you are not welcome in our church. Is that the message that God has sent us to deliver? 
What he's saying in essence is, if you are not a Democrat, God doesn't love you, he doesn't care about you, he doesn't value you, and he will not extend his grace to you. I think that's a horrible message, but the problem is, the church as a whole, over the past few years, have gotten in such political division, you know, not over great commission issues, but over things like climate change and COVID and critical race theory and do we get vaccinated, not vaccinated, do you wear masks, not masks, and we have been lured into these debates of division that has not only divided us uh, as a nation, but also has divided members within churches because there are sharp disagreements about those issues. And everybody has their opinion, and everybody believes their opinion is right, and everybody believes their opinion is factual when most of the time we don't have our facts straight or we have skewed information. And five years from now, when, when you've tweeted and posted your everybody needs to know statement, and it created more division. I, I've watched friendships disintegrate. I've watched people leave churches because it's like, you know, I, they, they, they can't agree with me and they can't agree with me. I, I'm, I'm parting ways with them. And this has been a horrible, horrible testimony to the church of Jesus Christ in a time frame in which we could shine brighter than ever before. Our eyes have been so fixed on winning fueled by the fear of losing our freedom and our rights in our country, I fear that we're losing what we should fear the most, and that is our voice and our influence. Might I remind you that Peter is writing to a group of people under the Roman Empire, the Roman regime, which was horrible. They were highly taxed, they were highly abused, and the church was highly persecuted. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and the faith chapter says, by faith Abraham, and by faith Moses, and by faith. But if you read the rest of that chapter, many people died as martyrs in those Roman Colosseums because they were submitting and surrendering to the Roman Empire, and they lost their lives as martyrs because of it. But it did not stop the church. In fact, the church became so impactful during those years they were, they, were, they were helping the poor to the degree that the Roman emperors had to finally say to themselves, you know what, they care more about the poor than we do, and it's making us look bad. How did God use them in a horrendous time of history to literally begin turning the world upside down? Because that's really what I, I want to address. Because Jesus, all through this letter, has held up Jesus as our example. So if Jesus is our example, how did Jesus approach these issues? What did Jesus do when he was under the regime of the Roman Empire? What is his example? Our response to those around us has been prescribed and modeled for us by our Savior. And here's the good news. It is not our responsibility to solve the world's problems. It's not. That is not our calling. There's not a single one of us who has the power or the authority or the know-how to solve the world's problems. For crying out loud, we can't even solve our own problems, let alone the world problems, right? You, you would attest to that. In fact, Jesus has not even commissioned us to solve the world's problems. And it turns, as it turns out, he did not even attempt to solve them all either. You know what Jesus' emphasis was? And this is what I believe that a great commitment to the great, the great commandment and the great commission will build a great life and a great church. 
You know what the great commandment is? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The great commission, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus says if we will make that the motivation and the the, the one thing that we do as the body of Christ, that it will build a great life that has great amounts of influence and impact in the hearts and lives of those who are hurting because we bring to the table a hope the world cannot possibly bring. Follow Jesus in the Gospels while he often stopped to meet the individual needs of people. All right? He posted no permanent solution for any of society's big problems. He didn't even attack them. He didn't even, he didn't even take them on because he came for a different reason and a different purpose, and he left us with that same purpose. So Jesus refused to be dragged into taking sides on civic and social and national political matters. He made no effort to fix the system. In fact, there was a lot that needed to be fixed, so much so that his own execution, his own execution was induced by a broken injustice system that was unduly influenced by the loyalists who were representing the temple. But he didn't attempt to fix that. Even as a victim of the broken system, he refused to comment on the injustice of the system. When he stood before the governor, Pilate, and Pilate said in essence to Jesus, hey, I want you to know I've got the control and the power to take your life or to save your life. You know how Jesus responded? Oh, no, no, no. You think you've got power. You think you're the ruler, but you're not the ruler. Ain't nobody taking my life. I'm laying my, down my life by my own free will. And Jesus understood there is a system in place called the kingdom of God that overrules and overrides everything that you and I. Listen, stranger still, from the cross, he did not deserve, he, he, he yelled out forgiveness to those who were actually executing him. Broken system. But God used it in an incredible way. And so Jesus addressed the system, didn't address the system because what he did address is the heart behind the system. The heart behind the system is the system of the human heart. The reason why we have government failure, the reason why we have civil government failure, the reason why we have school board failures is because of the heart that is behind the system. We have broken hearts. The human problem is the problem with the human heart. And that is exactly what Jesus came to address. He says, you want a better life? You want a better family? You want a better community? You want a better government? You want a better world? It will never happen until somebody fixes the human heart because the human heart is desperately wicked above all else. And who can cure it? It is beyond cure except outside of the hands of God. Listen, parents, you want to have better children? You want to, you want them to behave better? Shepherd their hearts. You got to teach them how to Bring them to the point where they surrender their heart under the authority of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, I mean, everything that disturbs us about America and the world originated in our hearts. And I say this with certainty because Jesus said it with clarity. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18. He says, these things come out of a person's mouth because they come out of their, their heart. 
So if you are disturbed about what people are talking at rather than talking to one another, if you're bothered by the condescending tone and the dehumanizing terminology that characterizes so much of our national conversation, it is not a political problem. It doesn't change or improve if your candidate wins. Jesus labeled this behavior as a heart problem, a heart issue. In fact, he went even further to say, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. He could have just kept going on. Everything that disturbs us Everything that disturbs us about other people, our national problems, or even us, is rooted in a heart issue. This is where it centers. This is where it all begins. And so the Bible says your heart is the seat. It's the center of who you are. And when the heart changes, behavior changes. When behavior changes, then the world changes. And Jesus capped it off by saying this, these are what defiles a person. So if everything that disturbs us about our culture, if everything that disturbs us about what's happening in our systems, in our governmental systems, why do we become so entangled in these secondary concerns? Because Jesus knew better, and I believe He did better. He says, we are kingdom citizens. We refuse to take sides in this this cultural war because we have been sent here to reflect the very essence of God's kingdom. And so God's message ought to be our message. And here's why we bring hope. And this is on the top of your outline. Hope is an optimistic outlook that is dependent upon God's promises. An optimistic outlook dependent upon God's promises. Peter called it a living hope. You know what that means? That means our hope moves moves from the temporal to the eternal. I'm not locked into this temporary world. I know that government's not always going to be great. I know that whether it's civil or whatever it might be. Why? Because we have a heart problem in America. We have a heart problem in humanity. It's called sin. And until the heart issue is dealt with, nothing really changes. A living hope comes to completion. It means it's final. It's, it's glorious. Why? Because it's fulfilled in God's promises. Listen very carefully to what Peter said in his second letter. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth, right? The home of the righteous. Listen. If what's happening in our government, in our world, is moving us towards a one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world religion, headed up by an antichrist, that is God's will unfolding, and you are not going to stop it. And that sets off the tribulation, that sets off Jesus' return, setting up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, and when after all of that is said and done, God will destroy the present heavens and earth, recreate it. So that is our new heaven where sin has been eradicated and eliminated from everything that God has created. And that is what the plan that God has for this world as given in the word of God. You're not going to stop that. What we're here to do is to help people find hope because their hope needs to be beyond this world because there is nothing for them beyond this world. You ask people they have, well, I hope, you know, I hope things get better. I hope the next politician will make it better. I I hope my marriage is going to make it. I hope my kids turn out all right. Well, what are you going to do after you die? Well, I hope I make it to heaven. That is not a hope. 
That's a hope so. We have a hope. It's rooted and grounded in the promises of God's word. And Peter says, if we who have hope, if we approach it in the right way, we can maximize our influence upon the hearts and the lives of those around us. Do you realize the, how significant the sphere of influence you have? You have far more influence on far more people than you ever thought or imagined. It is, it is um, guesstimated that you have about 500 people that you influence on a yearly basis. So what do we bring to the table? Peter gives us four basic instructions on how we need to approach bringing hope into the world based on how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't come to try to solve the world's problems. He came to solve the problem, the human heart. And we have that message. It's rooted and grounded in Christ. It's rooted and grounded in the gospel. It is rooted and grounded in your life. And this is the hope you bring to a hopeless world. So number one is you have to live your faith before you explain your faith. Live it before you explain it. Or you can say it this way. Live your hope, then explain your hope. What did he say in verse 8? Finally, all of you, based on what he's just said about all this, these relational issues, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with, or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would... Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek, seek peace and pursue it. So what is, what is Peter saying to us? Listen, um, when you start a new job, when you move into a new neighborhood, when you start a new school, or wherever you're having contact with people, do you know that people are observing you? They're watching you. They want to know how you conduct yourself. They want to know how, when they push against you, do you push back? They want to see how you respond to certain and various scenarios. Because listen, unless they see that you are kind and caring and really interested in them as a person, they really don't care what you have to say. They really don't. People do not care how much you know unless they know how much you care about them. But this is not the persona that the church is often giving to the world around us. This is not the vibe that we're, we're putting out there on a day in and day out basis. So Peter uses a seven word description on how do I live my faith in order to have influence and impact and then the ability to speak in the lives of people. He says there ought to be harmony, right? The key to uh, regaining our voice in society. Listen, Jesus was very concerned about division. He prayed about that very factor within the body of Christ. If you look in John chapter 17, one of his, one of his priestly prayers. God loves diversity. Harmony doesn't mean that we all think the same, that we all like the same things, that we all have the same personality. God didn't make you a cookie-cutter Christian, that you got to believe the same way. Listen, if you walk into a church and they say, you can only believe this, 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 and this, and this way, and this way, and this way, and if you deviate from us one iota, that is not a church that's called a cult. Listen, opposites attract, okay? When you got married, one of the things you noticed 
about the person you were dating and then you got engaged to were all the things you had in common. But shortly after you got married, you began to discover you got a whole lot of things you don't have in common and you don't agree on. Little things that can irritate you, you know, like toilet paper over the top or from underneath and how do you squeeze the toothpaste and why do you throw your towels all over the kitchen floor and, and I mean, it's just a different story. Um, do you agree with everything with your spouse? I'm on every topic and every subject. My wife and I don't. We just don't agree on everything. There are some areas that she still needs to grow in and you need to pray for her. The struggle is real for me, and the only reason I stay is because I love her. So, she's not in here. That's why I could say that today. <laughs> the early church had some deep rift disagreements, but they were united on who God is, on Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, those foundational doctrinal issues and they united around the gospel of Jesus Christ and they turned the world upside down because of it. They had some sharp disagreements. They had some sharp arguments, but they did not allow that to destroy them. They did not allow that to move them off the message that God has given to the church for a world that is deeply hurting and needs Jesus. He says, we come with sympathy. Sympathy, simply saying is, listen, I want to understand you. I want to understand why you believe what you believe. I had dinner with somebody uh, not long ago who has some very, you know, we, we are friends, and, and, but we, we, we disagree on a lot of things when it comes to uh, religious or spiritual things. And, and when somebody says, well, you know, what do you believe happens after you die? And, you know, he gives my, his opinion. And so rather than just blasting the opinion, say, well, that's wrong. And the Bible says, and I'm a, my, my question is out of sympathy is like, how did you come to that conclusion? What made you decide that? What, what, what was the thought pattern that you had that drew that conclusion? Because I had some of the same conclusions very early on in life. I believe, solely believe that when you died, you just were annihilated. You just never knew you existed. And if you were to pressure me and say, well, Greg, where, how did you come up with that? Where did, you, where did you come up with that idea? I couldn't have told you. It's just what I believe. All right, this is our starting point. We have to be starting rather than just hammering people. We live in a day where there's no civility and interchange of conversation because we lack sympathy. We don't really care about the other person's viewpoint. We just want to hear their viewpoint. And if they do not agree with me and cannot agree with me, we just want to hammer them to the point where we say, you're dead to me. That is not going to win the world. All right, this is not God's calling upon our life. He says we are to clothe ourselves in sympathy. I don't mean that you have to agree with them. Sympathy means you're trying to see things through their eyes. What brought them to these conclusions? What painful event in their life happened that maybe drew them to a conclusion about something in their life that forever stamped something on their thought processes and their emotions that caused them to believe such a thing? We have hope. They have no hope. If we're going to be able to tell about our hope, we have to approach people from a different perspective. Amen? He says loyalty um, in verse 8. Again, he says love means 
that you care deeply about someone, even more than your own opinion and having your own opinion affirmed back to you. Loyalty is commitment to a relationship. I have relationships with people with whom I have, would have deep disagreements with on a lot of things, morals, values, lifestyle. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to keep those lines of communication open. I'm not going to come at this person and just hammer them and say, well, you've got to see it this way and you've got to see it now or God doesn't love you, he doesn't care about you, and he just you know, wants nothing to do with you. That is not keeping the doors open so that I can continue to pour into that person's life, speak into that person's life, and have influence over the long haul. And this is kind of what loyalty is about. It's about loving them to the degree, because I deeply care about them more than having my own opinion affirmed back to me. And this, again, was the life of Jesus. What about compassion? The word compassion comes from splagma, means a deep feeling of pity that works, out, works up within you. Like, this is not a false pity. Now, I pastored in the South, and if somebody come up to you and said, well, bless your heart, that's AKA for you're an idiot. I just don't want to say it, right? Sympathy is understanding someone else's feelings. Compassion is taking it a step further, and it is putting something into action. The reason why I want to keep these lines of communication open is because I want to help them. I want God to give me the opportunity for them to ask me for the reason of the hope that's in me. Why I view things differently and why I see things differently. It's amazing how God will give you doors of opportunity to speak into a person's life if you keep those lines of communication open. But if I shut them off and shut them down, then that is just, I've just eliminated it, right? I, I just want you to see it my way, and it's my way or the highway, and if you don't see it my way, we're not having a relationship, and I'm not having fellowship, and you, you just do your thing, and I'll do mine. Is, is that what Christ did? Is that the way he's called us to live? No. He says we are also... <clears throat> To come in humility, right? Humbleness means I may not agree with you, but I'm going to listen to you. You know, I, I built a house five years ago, and the neighbor built a house next to me. It's a very large, very nice house. Ended up being a drug house. All right, so for five years, I mean, we never knew how many police officers are going to be in the front door. Who's getting arrested the next day? SWAT busted in the back door one time and, uh, of their house. I mean, but I, commit, you know, I kept communication open with this family. And all the people who are living in this house. I, I talked with the father. I talked with the boyfriends. We had communications in the backyard. They knew I was a pastor. And, and here, you know, I knew what they were doing. They knew I knew what they were doing. I wasn't calling the police on them. I knew the police knew what was going on. They were already tracking them. I kept the line of communication. But it did give me opportunity to speak into the heart and life of the father and several of the boyfriends who came in and out of that house. Now, did they get saved? No. Uh, but I had chance to share with them, right? I opened up the lines of communication and kept that open in a, what I hope it was a humble way. And humility means that I'm also honest about my own weaknesses, right? My own needs, my own failures. It's not assuming that I know it all or I understand everything. Because one of the things I could share with them, as you know, I was an addict once. 
And here's what drove my addiction. And here's how I got into it. And this is how I got out of it. This is how God delivered me from this. So at least they got the message. At least they heard some hope. And what God does with that, I have no idea because they're, they're now, uh, the house has been sold and, and auctioned off. And I don't even know who's going to be moving into me next. All right, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm ready for the challenge, whatever it is, right? Merciful, he says. Mercy is more than kindness. Get, mercy is giving kindness more than demanding justice. So if somebody pushes back against you on Facebook, what are you going to do? You're going to push back on them? They, they, they slander you on Facebook? You're going to slander them back? You push me, I'll push you back? Listen, whenever somebody says something about you that's harsh and critical, that sets off a huge emotional turmoil inside of you, right? So you're all fired up, you're all burned up. So what are you going to do with that emotion? You can either uh, retaliate back on Facebook or you can look for a resolution. And the resolution is maybe you don't say anything. Uh, I've, I've posted things before and got pushed back on what I posted. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to pray and ask God to take charge of this situation and to remember that yes, they have slandered me. It is, there's not one factual truth that has been said. However, I'm choosing to forgive them just as Christ forgave me. I'm not going to get into a tit for tat on, on, on social media with somebody because I do not want to unhinge the opportunity of continual communication. Does that make sense? So this, we're faced with this all the time, okay? Social media has changed the course of things in a huge way. And he says, out of maturity. How do I show maturity? I learned how to control my tongue. This is what James is all about, right? He said, man, uh, your tongue can be like a flaming fire. You need to get it under control. It's a sign of maturity. Think before you speak and a controlled heart. He says to seek peace and pursue, pursue it. That mean, may mean that I'm going to speak well of them even though they sp spoke ill of me. It might mean I'm just going to choose not to say anything in return. I'm just going to choose not to respond. Now, I want you to look at this list because here's Peter draws in. He says, our attitude is just as important as our words. Anytime there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do, you lose credibility. Again, people don't care how much you know until first they know how much you care. There's where your influence is. And it may get shut down from time to time, but I'm going to tell you, God will reopen those doors in miraculous ways. Number two, expect pushback. All right, expect pushback. He goes on to say in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are Blessed, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. Verse 17, it is better it is, it, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Pushback may be subtle, all right? It might be they don't invite you to the party, the, the, the backyard barbecue. It might be that they just kind of give you the cold shoulder. It may become something more ramped up where they gossip about you, slander about you, and say slanderous things, hurtful things to other people about you that are not true. Listen, there are a lot of ways we can suffer. 
Uh, there's three of them I listed on your outline. I'm just going to touch on suffering because of your own personal sin. Jonah's the example. God said to go to Nineveh and preach the message of the gospel to them. Jonah says, I don't want to go. I'm not going because I know you're, you're merciful, God. If they repent of their sin, you're going to save them Ninevites, and they're our enemies. And so he spent three days in a submarine and then got puked out on the seashore, preached the message. God saved the, the, the Assyrians and the city capital of Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He got mad, got all puffed up in pride, sat on the side of a hill and was angry with God. All right, so you can bring, if, if you choose to live in disobedience against God, listen, you're going to suffer because of it. Stop blaming other people for the things you're doing. The second type is that of doing what is right. Joseph is the example. God gave him a vision, and he did what was right. His brother sold him into slavery. Then he's in the prison. Then he's second in command over, uh, uh, under Pharaoh over Egypt. And God, he says to his brothers when he finally met them face to face, again, he says, after, you know, 13 years after all this happened, he says, listen, guys, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of the lives of many people. And so some, this was Jesus, right? Jesus suffered insult. Not everybody liked him. People picked up stones to stone him. He, his family thought he was nuts in one case. They did an intervention. People hurled insults. They crucified him, yelled crucify him. He endured all of the suffering. And we're going to look tit for tat, the suffering Jesus suffered on your behalf and mine on June the 5th. But needless to say, Jesus suffered because he knew there was a greater goal in mind, the salvation of humanity, the changing of the human heart. I'm simply saying sometimes we may have to suffer pushback from people because we're doing the right thing. But you ain't going to do the right thing in the right way. And then there's suffering for no perceivable reason, like Job. You know, he didn't understand why he was suffering, but God used his suffering for a greater purpose. So here's the deal. What did Jesus always bring to the table? Truth. And when you bring truth to the table, it's not always welcomed, even though it's needed. Our current culture is concerned with acceptance and tolerance and inclusivity to the degree that we can no longer speak truth without pushback in some form or fashion, okay? Um, Jesus didn't operate that way. Politeness is not the same thing as being kind. Jesus was in the business of telling truth, although he couched it in grace, which are the seven words that we just looked at, but he brought truth to the table in order to save sinners from death. Now, to give you an example, in Matthew chapter 19, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say to him? Well, keep these commands. He said, well, I've done all of those. And that was a lie. But Jesus didn't confront the lie. He didn't even, you know, challenge him on the lie. But what he did say, okay, well, then I want you to take all of your possessions, sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, come and follow me, and your reward is that you will have stored up treasures in heaven. How did the guy respond? Not doing it. I'm not. And he walked away. Now, why did Jesus say this? He didn't tell anybody else to sell their possessions. Because Jesus was interested in the man's heart. He knew that his heart issue 
needed to be exposed to God's truth if he was ever going to repent of that heart issue and turn to Jesus to be Lord and Savior of his life. He could see past the young man's words into the core of who he was. He loved money and possessions far more than he loved God. Do you remember what the first commandment is? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you know what he broke? The very first commandment. Because to put anything in front of God, God calls idolatry, and God equates idolatry as adultery. Adultery means I have another lover, and that lover supersedes you. If I go home and say to my wife, I'm having an affair, I'm saying to her, I've got another lover, you're no longer number one. How do you think she's going to respond? You don't want to know. I won't be here next week. So Jesus knew that politeness would say, oh, oh, he didn't chase after the guy. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry for hurting your feelings. Please come back. I'll smooth it over. I'll make the road easier. I'll make the pathway brighter for you. He didn't do any of those things because he knew that the core issue that was keeping him out of the kingdom of God was a heart issue, and he nailed the issue right up front. He was saying, in essence, this is what it means to follow me, and it's going to cost you everything. And saying it any other way would have meant watering down the truth, which would have been polite, but ultimately unkind. I'm just telling you, when you bring truth, do it in the right way, but expect pushback. Number three, turn your misery into ministry. Turn your misery into ministry. What does he say in verse 15? But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this what? With what? Help me. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Say it again. Gentleness and respect. Not harshness, not cruelty. Listen, nobody gets saved because you blast them on Facebook. Nobody gets saved because you're picketing a gay pride parade. This is not the way we're to approach this. And unfortunately, we've been sending the wrong message for a long time. I said, I made a statement when I, a long time ago when I first began my journey with cancer and I started writing my blog and I'm being very open and honest about my journey. And here's the statement that I made. You will never understand the shallowness of your walk with God until God has put you into the deepest and darkest valley of your life. Now, there's a reason why God allows you to walk those valleys. Think of your relationship with God like this. Right, put your hands together like this. Like you're in, you're in relationship with your heavenly. This is God. This is you. You're in relationship. Do you know that you can be in this kind of relationship but not have intimacy? That you can know God but not really know him. You can trust God but not really trust him. I met my surgeon for the first time last week. This guy's doing a major surgery on me, eight to ten hours long. He looks like he's like Brian, my son-in-law's age. He assures me he's done many of these surgeries. 
I trust him. I don't know him, but I'm trusting him with my life. We're not buddies. We're not pals. We don't, we're not going to do anything else together. He's just going to get a lot of my money. That's the only thing that's going to happen. And sometimes that's the way we walk with God because here's what we do. The moment God puts us in a valley, immediately we say, God, get me out of it and get me out of it now. When God wants to take your fingers, like when God wants to interlock his life, his being, his essence with you like this, and this is what the valleys do, but here's the beauty of the valleys. The beauty of the valley is that every valley I've ever walked in, I anchor in on a couple of promises of God. The reason why I can say to people when they ask me about the hope, rather than looking at them and going, duh, is that I've anchored in on some promises of God that helped me through that valley because on the other side of that valley, my life changed forever and my walk and relationship changed forever. So look back over the valleys of your life and see how God has changed you. I can talk to people about what it means to, you know, have parents get a divorce and be raised in a single parent home and have identity issues and live in poverty growing up. And, and I can talk about things like, uh, you know, uh, addiction and diabetes and cancer. These are valleys and deep rifts that God has forever changed my life in. And so I've anchored in on promises because when somebody asked me, Greg, in light of all that you've been through, man, why do you stay with God? Why are you still putting your hope and your faith and your trust in God? I can say these are the promises that I have been faithful to and I have anchored my hopes into and God has never let me down one time. Now you're speaking hope into somebody's hopeless life. And let me just add this little caveat. Um, sharing your hope doesn't mean you only share your victories. Now, my wife and I have been very open about our marriage, right? So our first five years were horrible. We, we, we were on the divorce train. She asked me for a divorce. Talked about this last week. But, if, but now, what, what, what can I bring to the table? If somebody is having problems, marital problems, they're on the, the brink of divorce, and say, well, well how, tell me, you, you and your wife are going to get a divorce, and now this year you're celebrating your 45th wedding anniversary. Tell me, how did you get there? How did you make that pivot? How did you make that adjustment? Well, let me tell you the promises that God gave to us and what we anchored into and what we put into practice, and this is how it worked. Or man, you maybe you have a, a child that was just rebellious to the nth degree and you were estranged in that relationship for years, but now it's back again. And, and somebody says, man, how did that happen for you? I'm in the same situation. Please, 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 God will use your mini misery for ministry if you will allow him to do that. And he'll burst the doors wide open if you will have a reason ready for the hope that's within you. Here's the last one. Stay on message. He just says, stay on message. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put you to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, though through whom also you, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, 
it was only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolized baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but from the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Listen, <laughs> I don't have time to unpack that because my time is up. What the ark and, 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 and baptism, um, a lot of confusion here. I wish I could unpack it. People hang on that and say, well, see, salvation, uh, you're saved by Jesus and baptism. That's not what he's saying at all. Listen, if you go back to Genesis, the world was so evil because um, demonic beings uh, possessed people, inter interrelated with women, started a super race, and God says everything, everything that was going on was, and the intention of the human heart was nothing but evil. And so he's like, I'm going to destroy it with a flood. 120 years, Noah is building an ark. He's giving the message that God's judgment is coming, but nobody is believing him. That ark symbolizes Jesus. There is only one door into that ark. Jesus says, I am the door. He is the door. So when those eight people, Noah's family, went into the door, into the ark, God shut the door. The ark encased them and protected them from the judgment of God. The moment you give your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, God baptized you into Christ and he into you. And when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected. Therefore, encased in Christ because you went through the open door. Now when God's judgment comes in the future, you are safe and secure from all judgment of God. You have been judged in Christ and you are in him and he's in you. That is our hope to the world. There is a judgment that is coming. But we have hope. We have a message. So we have to stay on, on message. Even at Jesus' broken justice system, the sham trials he found himself where they had to get people to lie about him to even make some charges stick against him so that he could be crucified what did Jesus do he had clothed himself in sympathy and loyalty and compassion and humility and mercy and maturity and for the sake of others he lived a different kind of life because he knew that people really would not care about his message until first they knew how much he cared about them. And so the last fill in the blank on your the goal is to win, not to win an argument. The goal is to win the person. Let the message of Christ be offensive, not the messenger. So we use a word here in our church, splash. Show people love. Show people love and share him. Keep that in mind. Show people love. Show them how much you care. Keep the doors of communication open. And when God gives you an opportunity to share the hope that is inside of you, you share that hope and you leave the results to God himself. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, Lord, just, uh, wow, this is a challenge to all of us because all of us have been in the heat of the battle of emotions and uh, being offended and maybe being offensive to others. But God, you've, you've done such an incredible work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, and we want to be, we want to be that, that lighthouse in the midst of darkness. We want to be that salt in the midst of decay in the world in which we find ourselves. So, I, Lord, I, I pray that we will, we will be mindful of our calling, that we will be mindful of the, 
the commission that you have given to us, the commandment that you have laid before us to love you with all of our being and to love others in the same fashion, in the same manner. And even if that means we have to take some hits in life, we have to take pushback, we have to encounter some suffering and and just uh, harsh words, God, we're willing to do it for the sake of those who need Jesus. So Lord, every trial, every tribulation we've been through, God, may you wrap our message around those things as you have forever changed our hearts and our lives through them. And God, we truly, truly, truly do want to stay on message because Jesus, you are the message. You're the only one who can change the human heart. And that's what you're after. We thank you and praise you, oh Lord Jesus, that somebody shared with us and you took hold of us and drew us into a relationship with you. And we desire that for others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna close out our time in song and in praise. And if you're here this morning and you've never... And you never, you've never started this relationship with Jesus. Um, this is the gospel that Paul just gave you, that Christ came to die. He was just, but he came for the unjust. He was the just, we're the unjust. But he can make us just, right? By putting our faith, our tr- trust in him and his payment on the cross for our sin debt alone. Not Jesus plus your good works. Not Jesus plus your good, your, your good looks. Uh, not because you're in a Christian family or you grew up in a Christian home or you went to a Christian school. It's you and Christ. That's where it all begins. He loves you profoundly. He wants to have a relationship with you, and it begins by stepping across that line of faith and saying, Jesus, I want to trust you. I'm laying it all on the line. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. I'm surrendering, surrendering and submitting my life under you, under your Lordship. Now, be the CEO of my life and help me to live it the best way that I can. That's God's desire and hope for you. It's for all of us. Now, we are about to leave this building and everywhere you go, you are messengers of that message, right? If we're messengers of the greatest message that we could ever deliver to the world, the only question is, will we be good stewards of that message and those opportunities, or will we squander it because we felt like we had to beat somebody down and beat them up because we wanted them to see it our way? Please, 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 clothe yourself as Peter challenges us in the righteousness of Jesus, the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, and let the world see that.